Greetings all. Hi, this is Teresa Willard-Hughes, and once again, I'm joined by Jean, and we're going to do a podcast today on something that I think is important, which is the shame and blame policing policies and laws that are impow- it impacts us all. So Jean, you want to say welcome? This is Jean, and um, I'm happy to be here again to talk about these uh, very important um, topics that in some way impact all of us. Thank you. So we've talked in a couple of podcasts before, and then in our my regular podcast, this whole concept of shame and blame laws. So somehow it's our fault. You know, that he says, she said, he, whatever he said is damn near right all the time. Whatever we said is wrong. Somehow we've invited this whole concept of being raped, uh, being sexually violated, even if we're small children. But what I've found over the last seven, eight years of doing research on shame and blame laws is they're getting more and more prominent. More and more judges are making some idiotic decisions as far as I'm concerned. And the thing that really amazes me, while most of our focus has been on the Supreme Court and how many people are conservative and who got on how and what their definition of Roe v. Wade is, there are Supreme Courts and states that are making horrible decisions and shame and blame laws. There is Daryl Nancy DeVoice, the former Secretary of Education, who's tried to strip Title IX, which were there Uh to protect Uh us as women. You look at various judges and the decisions that they're making, and as a result, what happens is more and more men are able to write off raping women. Our laws, are the laws that are going in, or the shame and blame policies, are primarily that somehow it's our damn fault. And that, to me, is really where the crime is. So yes, as a proponent or someone who served on Planned Parenthood boards and trustees, I am all about understanding and making sure that Roe v. Wade stands strong because we need it and for people to make their own decisions. But we got to get out of our head of just thinking about Roe v. Wade. You got to look around what's happening on the state level or what's happening on a county level with judges and policing departments and how we're being viewed even at the beginning of the whole process of what happens once we are raped. So Jesus is going to take the lead because I don't think I'm qualified to do it without screaming on looking at how we're looked at once we're raped. And if we ma- if we make the decision to report the crime. So Jane, do yeah. you mind? Yeah, thanks, Teresa. You know, I think first off, let's let's not minimize at all the personal strength and courage it takes to just come forward and say that you've been raped. Knowing how society views that and how people will treat you. I had in my teens, I was raped by, I guess we'll call them acquaintances, who were a handful of years older than me. The first time it happened, you know, I went to my adopted mother, not because I wanted to, but more because she was berating me for having a, oh, I guess I must have had an attitude that day or was feeling out of sorts, which I'm sure you can imagine why. And so I finally blurted out what happened. And her response is, had you come home when you were supposed to, 
then this never would have happened to you. So obviously it's your fault and you should just, you know, follow our rules. And the other time it happened to me, it was, I, I was in that period that I think I shared with you all on another episode where um, just being in my home was so unsafe for me that I was kind of, you know, sleeping on floors and couches or on with friends or supposed friend ended up getting sexually assaulted when I tried to raise awareness to that friend group you know well he would never do that and you know he's a good person how dare you say this about him you're just making this up because you of course are the one who wanted it come to find out a couple months later oh he does it again of course he does he was just getting away with it and preying on young girls who are in these vulnerable situations you go from first year attack which is traumatizing in and of itself. And then, you know, you're going to, if you're brave enough to go to the police or have decided that that's something that you're going to want to do and you decide to put yourself out there and report it, what happens when you go to the police department? According to the uh, Minneapolis Star Tribune, they did a review of um, rape cases and sexual assault cases in Minnesota, and they found that in a quarter of these cases, police never assigned an investigator. And in about a third of them, the investigator, they never interviewed the victim. And then in half of these cases, they never interviewed any potential witnesses. In about 75% of these cases that they reviewed, they're never forwarded to prosecutors for criminal charges. Fewer than 1 in 10 produced a conviction. Get yourself to, hey, I'm going to go forward to the police. You go to the police. Chances are, depending on how you look, and what neighborhood you live in. Let's not forget your economic status. Let's not forget your race. Let's not forget the color exactly. of your skin. Because no matter, based on how you look, is how you're going to be treated. Based on how old you are, how, how you're going to be treated. So, you know, if they, you know, I saw some, he- some headline the other day that, you know, a woman tried to report her sexual assault and the cops threw her in jail yeah. for being, you know, um, Getting an attitude with them or being, you know, quote unquote belligerent because, you know, they weren't taking her seriously. Now she's arrested. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you're going to be, you don't know how you're going to be treated by the police. And, um, you know, then if you do go forward and, and the police will take a report. Now you're going to go and get a rape kit. I'm sure we've all heard what's the status of um, rape kits in this country. According to CNN, um, they did a review of 25 law enforcement agencies across 14 states. They found that these, um, these agencies are destroying rape kits in cases that could still be prosecuted. According to one of these agencies, Oh, this is a routine process to make space in our evidence rooms. Yeah. Well, there's also one of the things to be able to clear up the rape case numbers on some in okay. some cases. What they'll do is they'll dis, the police will dismiss a rape case so that it doesn't look like they, they're, they're failing bringing people in. There's all the maneuverings that the police do, and they have such power. You think about the fact that you now risk calling the police, especially depending on who you are, what you look like, what neighborhood, right. what your economic status is. You call the police. 
you you know you've taken that risk and now you uh-huh. hope that these assholes will do something for you and as right. a result of that now you have neighbors looking at you you have I can tell you growing up black the one thing that I learned more than anything else you do not invite the police into your damn household that is just uh-huh. like a no no so now right. you've done it now what happens to you after they left on the CNN investigation They also found that police departments are closing cases. They're claiming that the victim is unable or unwilling to cooperate, um, which is just kind of a blanket statement they can throw on a case when they don't want to deal with you. Or they can say, you know, there's evidence that's lacking or someone makes an inconsistent statement. Because you can't remember everything after being traumatized? You know? Absolutely. And, and then if they're, if the victim was heavily intoxicated, they can stamp the case as unfounded or no crime and then just toss it out. The idea that women, women's bodies are not to be protected. You know, women as a human being don't deserve care and respect and there's no sense of like bodily autonomy. Well, you're still alive. You're fine. Keep on. Yeah. But also, let's remember, once it is brought up, it becomes a he said, she said. Of course, whatever the hell he said is right. You're wrong. We are, as you said, disposable. What happens is, how many conversations have we heard about him, his career, his potential? What will happen to him long term? Or the one that I really love is he was a family man. Somehow it's about him. And as a result of it being about him, and and that is just sex, that we don't stand a hope in hell in having a real conversation. And that's why we're doing this podcast is we got to take charge of this stuff as women. And those of us who've been victimized, it's time that we go, "Uh uh-uh. Because what we're looking at right now is the damage that it does to us long-term. For those of us who have been victimized by childhood sexual violence or rape, and that it happens every 73 seconds in this country, as we said, it's 1,180 cases every freaking day. It By the time that you do it for a year, you mentioned, city of, you mentioned Minnesota, so 432,000 people are the equivalent of what's the entire city of Minneapolis in Minnesota. I mean, every freaking year, this is what's going on. So we got to yeah. just stop. We got to stop just focusing on weight, Roe v. We have to look yeah. at it as a bigger issue. You know, now might be a good time to look at Kansas City. What happens in some of these police departments mm-hmm. where they are essentially employing and protecting predatory police officers and predatory investigators within the police departments. They're standing behind the badge. They've got a whole department of people around them. Look at these police. We know in terms of murdering, you know, people of color, right? We, we look at that, but we also need to look at sexual assault happening at the hands of police officers. And if we look here at uh, what's happening in the Kansas City Police Department, read an article on The Root um, that was done by uh, Michael Harriet in May of this year. It's appalling the systemic culture of 
predatory behavior by this police department who for years have been abusing their power, preying on women of color, and continued working in these communities until they end up being able to retire. Right. I know that article from the Kansas City Star. I think that you should give a brief description of this detective and his... I can't talk about it because I can't do it. You should do it. Oh, yeah. But he is a detective in the Kansas City Police Department. Essentially, he has been preying on black women in a poor area of Kansas City, in a community where... You know, these women all know about him. He preys on sex workers. He preys on young women. He preys on these vulnerable women, stalks them, gets them, rapes them, threatens them into um, claiming that they've witnessed crimes so that he can get confessions or he can get convictions. But he is using these women so that he can close cases, get his case numbers up, and oh, by the way, he's raping them and completely abusing them. There is an entire string of murdered women, um, a lot of them sex workers, um, some of them, you know, maybe people who are doing, you know, have drug problems or vulnerable women, and a string of murdered women that they're finding around Kansas City that are all linked to this Detective. One person. This one detective. So you think about the crime, because I couldn't do the beginning of it. Gene and I talked about it. The reality is you have the guy, the detective who's a rapist, a detective who's clearing cases. You have a detective who's doing all these crimes. And then think about the fact that he is the investigative detective. And so when Uh the family members ask, you know, what's going on with the case? How can you help us out? Your daughter, your A, she was nothing but a street worker. She was a whore. I mean, the insanity of this is just unreal that when you think about that's the shit that is going on. You could imagine being a vulnerable woman, being a street worker, which is something, you know, you don't get up one morning and go, hey, think, guess what? My career goes. I'm going to be a whore. You don't do that. It's it's not an option that you pick on on the career day. But you have the situation where you have a cop with absolute power. I don't know anybody who's of color that regardless of how well we do and where we are, we know that we can be subjected to anything with a policeman. Now, we live in that fear. And as a black woman, you're constantly living in that fear of what happens if you get pulled over. Our women are being dying at the hands of police. We know that. But this is probably one of the first time people are talking about what happens with the rape of women of color being used. Uh-huh. Preyed on by preyed on by detectives yeah. who are leveraging their positions of power for to operate with complete immunity, basically using and abusing these women. The other but, one I think that we should talk about is the judicial system. Think about the number of young girls that were preyed upon by Jeffrey Epstein. So he gets uh-huh. a sweetheart deal in down in Florida. While Jeffrey Epstein was serving his 13-month, less but a politely lenient sentence in the county jail in Florida, who else would have had the privileges of having a 12-hour work release furlough program six days a week, which he was able to be picked up by his own valet and delivered to his so-called office? That's privilege. 
that's privilege, that's power, and just goes to show that those young girls who had been victimized were powerless, vulnerable, and had no one to protect them, not even the courts. And as I've said, we've been talking so much about Roe v. Wade. And again, I've been in the trenches. I'm 73. I've been in the trenches of women's lives since the beginning of time, it seems like. But when we start about only looking at abortion, we lose out on understanding all the insidious crimes our judges and the court system and the police departments are allowed to do. One of the things they pointed out to me that I didn't realize is you see these big headlines about, you know, mandatory minimums, right? So there's a mandatory minimum and we all think like, oh yes, that'll do it. You know, that'll put put those bastards behind bars for a minimum of 25 years or whatever it is. But what I didn't realize until we started kind of digging into this and Teresa you know, you brought this to light for me. The ability of judges to just... What other crime can you plead down to, to that lesser degree, that has such an insidious long-term impact on people? In Phil, Missouri, there is a judge that allowed a man who pled guilty to not only raping, but sodomizing, molested, sodomized, gave a chlamydia, and the judge dismissed the case and gave him five years of probation. Why? Because according to the young man's attorney, he was catfished by an 11-year-old. Somehow this guy at 21 could not figure out an 11-year-old child was not 18, was not of age. But the judge let him go. This is the same judge a few years earlier that allowed another man to have a probation sentence of five years and one month after pleading guilty to raping an 8-year-old boy. Somehow, judges need to get their act together. Minnesota State Supreme Court in May 2021 tossed out a rape case, said that the young man could not be charged with rape because A, the young woman voluntarily got drunk. He raped her or had sex with her while she was passed out unconscious. But according to the unanimous decision of the Minnesota Supreme Court, he could not be charged because she beforehand got drunk, used drugs, and as a result of it, she somehow apparently bought this on upon herself. Pearls of wisdom of the Minnesota Supreme Court. The defendant can be charged with fifth-degree criminal sexual assault, which is a gross misdemeanor. And if convicted, he means that he can serve up to one year in prison and up to $3,000. What a contrast. Could he might have gotten 15 years behind jail, as well as $30,000 in fees? Take the So let's go back to the fact that when you're looking at that they're able to plead down uh, from a mandatory sentence. So if you impregnate a young girl, you know, a minor, from rape, it should be a mandatory, in some states, 10 to 25 years or $250,000 fine. I love how you can bargain it out. So what ends up happening is a guy pleads to a lesser charge. As I said in the podcast we did earlier, she's still yet pregnant, uh-huh. and, yeah. but he could go on about his life because, quote unquote, he's probably a good family man or the one that I really love. He's a good earner. He's a good oh, provider. Sure. So there's or, that. Or if he's young. Oh, this, uh, you know, if he's a college, one of these 
young college guys that we've seen, oh, he's got his whole life ahead of him. Yeah, it was a youthful indiscretion. That's my other one. And boys will be boys. But I also find it's amazing when we're talking about Roe v. Wade and all the abortion laws, the restrictive new abortion laws. At one point, I think it was less than five years ago, 31 states allowed parental rights to a man who was convicted of raping somebody or sexually assaulting someone if it produced a child, as long as he was not convicted of first-degree rape, which is almost impossible to do, is able to have parental rights over his child that he produced. The women, now you're faced with having to deal with your rapist on a, you know, what could be a fairly regular basis. Basics. And his and now family. You're putting yourself in harm's way. And again, your child. And again and again. Oh, yeah. yeah. And your child. Like, how can you trust someone like this with a child? Well, I could tell you, I, as I said, I had my eldest son. I had barely turned 19, impregnated by my father. I knew as a 19 year old. The thing that I feared the most, and that goes back to the six week heartbeat law bullshit, mm-hmm. is that. If I had been a lot younger and I had not had a year of college behind me or part of a year of college behind me, and I had not seen the more of the world than where I'd lived, I knew that my father would be the one who was raising my child. So if I had a daughter that, that she was going to be subjected to being raped by this pedophile, or even worse in my mind, that if as a boy he would turn out to be a mirror image of this asshole. So when you start looking at it from those standpoints, again, it's looking at the larger picture as opposed to just focusing on the abortion laws. So one of the other ones that I I wanted to talk about is that when you look at Native American women, the laws that are imposed against them and the number of women that are raped and the outcomes of those rapes, you look at the loophole laws that if you're a non-Native American man and you rape a Native American woman on a reservation, you can't take it. They can't go to court in a Native in a Native court. And then the battle becomes the jurisdiction of of where the rape is. Is it a state's crime? Is it a federal crime? Is it a tribal crime? Either way, it doesn't really matter. This asshole could get off. Meantime, she's still raped. The one that is really bothering me right now more than anything else is Daryl Betsy DeVos, the former Secretary of Education under Donald Trump. This chickie just tried to gut Title IX. Title IX was there to protect women, and a great big part of it was also about rape, so that women, young girls on college campuses had to write to be able to call someone out if they had been raped. Daryl Betsy thought, gee, and maybe with a bunch of other helicopter mom whose little boys could never have done anything so wrong. Our laws are being gutted for these guys to be able to, and their moms, and I'm a mama's son, so hold on, I'll own up to being a mama's son, you're very protective. But somehow, these boys are being able to say, it wasn't me, or I could accuse the girl, and oh, she's a tramp, oh, she came to the sorority party or fraternity party. And our laws are being gutted in that way. Young yeah. girls are, you know, at early in elementary schools are reporting they're being sexually abused by fellow classmates. The same thing in high school. And the school goes, well, it didn't happen on our campus, therefore it's not our problem. 
It is yeah. your goddamn problem because those boys are going back to your school. And right. it's just right. the devaluing. And young girls are learning at a younger and younger age. Whoever I am, it does not matter. No one gives a damn. We cannot afford another generation of growing up and thinking they have no value. Absolutely. And I think, you know, Teresa, if you look at, you know, you're making a good point there on mother of sons, right? But also looking at daughters, looking at our young generation of, of women who need supporters, right? We need to be able to support them and empower them. And you look at your aunt, you look at my adopted mother, you look at Felicia Rashad, you look at Betsy DeVos, and all of these women who are willing to stand there and support these predators and make excuses for them and and get behind the men who are perpetrating these terrible crimes against women and girls. Where is the logic in that? Where is the funding? You talk about all this righteous bullshit about how you're here for us and protecting the six-week six you know, heartbeat and all this crap. But where in the hell is your funding to help us out? When was the last time any of these same people voted to be able to have young girls who found themselves pregnant have finances to be able to continue to school, be able to help them in any way? It's, again, shame and blame. Oh, you're a whore. You did this. Boom, it's your fault. So the question comes back to, it's the same question that I understood when I was raped and impregnated by my father. Who is going to raise that child? And what right. is the outcome of that child? And it's not just about the young girl. It's about what's going to happen to that child that's going to be raised within the family with a damn pedophile. Mm -hmm. That is yeah. the scariest part about it, this whole yeah. thing. Basically, Gina and I would like to sum up today's presentation and thank everybody for listening to us. And again, please be mindful that while our focus has always been on Roe v. Wade, there's the other issues around Title IX, uh, local jurors, uh, judges, and have the reducing mandatory sentencing. We need to be able to look at this in a much broader way than what we are currently thinking of. Jane? Right. And also looking at, you know, this from a community perspective, and this is where Teresa and I have been talking about the idea of um, creating a community and different community groups who can bring women together, bring people together who have experienced you know, maybe childhood sexual abuse, maybe you've been raped or sexually assaulted in some raising our voices as a collective to push back against raising it up at the state level, to push back on these ridiculous laws that allow predators to walk free. So again, we want to thank you all for listening and we're looking forward to talking to you again within the next few days. God bless you all. Take care of yourself. Thank you. This is thank Teresa. You. All right. Bye-bye, guys.